please grab your Bible this morning and turn with me to the little book of Jude, the book of Jude. This morning we come to the end of our journey in the book of Jude, and you will recall that when he he began his letter, if you want to go back to the beginning of the book, he got more than he bargained for, didn't he? When Jude originally began his letter, he fully intended to write about the the common salvation, as he says, that he shared with his brothers and sisters in Christ. That's verse 3. But what happened is he began to write this little letter. He he surveyed the theological landscape. He, He surveyed the church, and he realized that he had a big problem on his hands. And so he shifted his focus from the arena of encouragement to the arena of exhortation. Listen to how the focus of his writing changes. If you will look at verse 3 with me for a moment. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So, as we began several weeks ago to study verse 4, we went from verse 4 all the way to nearly the end of the book, and we have been studying for several weeks the apostates. These are the apostates that Jude was addressing in this book. I want to give you a thumbnail sketch of the apostates by way of review and remind you that the, 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 the individuals that he was referring to were first and foremost ungodly. He says that in verse 4. But also in verse 4, he says that these ungodly false teachers, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. These false teachers deny the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at the creed of these apostates and learned that they're driven by emotion, that they are driven by immorality, that they are devoted to autonomy. They write the rules in their book. These false teachers were also devoid of devotion. To glorify the great God of the universe was not their objective in their lives. Then we move from the from the creed of the apostates to their conduct. And we learned in verses 12 to 16 that these false teachers were duplicitous. They were devoted to self. They were destitute. They were, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were diabolical. These false teachers were deluded. In verses 17 through 19, we learn that these apostates are referred to as men of derision. The, these false teachers were men of division. They loved to, to create controversy in the local church. I believe they were gossiping. I believe they were slandering. They were, they were spreading a false report. They were men of the world. And Jude says also in verse 19, they were men without the spirit. But then we move from the so-called resume of these apostates... And we find a shift in verse 20. And the shift in verse 20 is designated by the little word, but. And here Jude offers wisdom to God's people and provides a prescription for them to persevere in light of what they're experiencing. He 
invites them and admonishes them to persevere in light of the wolves who have secretly snuck into their church family who threatened to undermine their faith. And to bring it home to February 2019, I think you'd agree with me that we ourselves find a similar situation. We are living in an age of post-modernity where statements of absolute truth are ridiculed. We are living in an age where grace is twisted, where moral relativism rules. And so Jude's message, I believe, is as relevant for us today as it was for his original audience in the first century. Now, the first aspect of the prescription involves things that we need to do, things that we need to be about, things that we need to accomplish. And we looked at these last week. They occur in verses 20 and 21. There are four things by way of review. He encouraged these dear believers who were living in the midst of theological wolves to to live with an encouraged faith. And isn't that something we all need? We need our our Christian faith to be encouraged. We We need our Christian faith to be emboldened. And then he challenged them to have a prayerful posture. One of the things I ask people, how are they doing with their prayer life? And a majority of people I talk to say they they struggle with their prayer life. Prayer takes devotion. Prayer takes discipline. But then he also says we are to have an eager spirit. And finally, he says we are to be a people with an empathetic heart. And so what I want to do as we move forward into the last two verses of this book... I want to help you to see the big picture and remind you once again that the, the context of the first century is these false teachers had, had crept into the church. Jude describes them in great detail. Now he tells the first century Christians that each one of them, including you and I, have a responsibility to carry out. That is, we must live the Christian life. May I say this? That God does not live the Christian life for us. Is we are called to do something. We are not mere passive bystanders. And so imagine with me that you were in the first century. And I want to imagine with me that you actually went to your mailbox and you received this letter. And you, you learn in this letter about the apostates creed. You learn about their conduct. You learn about their eventual condemnation. You learn that you have an important role to play in the Christian life. Thankfully, Jude does not conclude his letter on this note. He concludes by telling us what God does for us. He tells us that God is absolutely committed to us. If, if you're here this morning and you are, you are struggling with something, Perhaps you're struggling with discouragement. You're struggling with depression. You're struggling with just feeling lackadaisical. You're, you're undisciplined. You're not motivated. And you need a, a boost of encouragement. And you say, Pastor, for the last three or four weeks, we've been learning about the apostates. It's not real encouraging. Well, it's news that the first century believers needed to hear about. And I believe it's news that we all need to hear about. But now comes the moment if you are depressed or discouraged or disheartened or lonely. Now is the day to receive a serious dose of encouragement. 
God is absolutely committed to his people. And this is how Jude ends his letter to these followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the remaining verses in Jude and be encouraged with some very important realities that unfold in verses 24 and 25. The title of the message is A Persevering Church. And that is my plea with you today, that wherever you are in your Christian journey, that you would persevere. That you would stand firm. My plea would also be for those of you who are not yet Christians. There are people here at Christ Fellowship who are not yet Christians. That's my assumption every week and will be until my final sermon. That there's someone here that is not a Christian. So my challenge to you is that you would begin the Christian race. And once you begin the Christian race, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you too would begin to persevere. You can become a Christian today and begin the process of persevering. So please stand with me as we read the closing verses of this little book. And this is the word of the Lord, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, my simple prayer today is that. Every person here who is a follower of Christ, that you would enable them to persevere. God, I pray that they would realize first that they can't do it alone, that they need your divine assistance. They need the, the power of the Holy Spirit, but help them also to remember that they have responsibilities before them. We are never called to merely sit passively by and watch the Christian life go by. And so, Lord, may we have the proper balance this morning. Help us to persevere as the people of God. And for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, may, may someone today, may someone today come to the place where they acknowledge their sin, they acknowledge that they have a guilty conscience, they acknowledge that they are under the almighty wrath of God. May they turn their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. May someone receive salvation today. And Lord, may my prayers be more than just one person. May it be directed to many people. May many people come to a saving faith in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A persevering church. As we come to the conclusion of this particular study, I want you to see both who and what undergirds our salvation. The who, of course, is God. It is God who undergirds our salvation. But the what, you see, is his power. It is the power of God that undergirds our salvation. But I want to guide you into, the, into a, a thought that I had this morning. Early this morning, I thought, I want to guide you into the caverns of God. I think I saw a picture of a cave a few days ago, and I thought, what a beautiful sight. I want to go deep with you for a few minutes into the caverns of God, and so that we would discover God's grace, and that he would enable us to take a deeper look at these amazing truths. And so we begin by looking at the power of God. 
The power of God in verse 24 literally explodes in a word that you will likely not recognize at first glance. It's a word that if you were to read verse 24 in your devotions, probably would not be the first word that would would pop into your mind. And I want to show that word to you. The word I'm referring to in verse 24 is the word able. The little word able, or that implies ability. Now, the the Greek word translated able or ability is the word dunamai. Can I just have someone shout out, what does dunamai sound like in English? Can you just imagine? Dynamite. So now, read the verse again with me. Because the word dunamai, the translation of that word, can be able or, or can or ability, but... The English word we get is dynamite. So think about dynamite. Now to him who is... Wow, you did it. I didn't even ask you to. To him who is... Right? That's what I think when I read this passage. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is the word that means divine power. He is Able. This is the word translated as dynamite, as I said. I want you to listen to several verses where this word is utilized, and I, I think you'll be greatly encouraged. Mark chapter 2, verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. They're speaking about Jesus, who can dynamite, who can forgive sins but God alone. John chapter 6, verse 65. And Jesus said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That is, if you are not a believer today, in and of yourself, you can't do it. You don't have the ability. You don't have the power. You don't have the inclination. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That you are lost. You are without hope and without God. The only one that can raise you to this new spiritual life is the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 16 verse 25 Here we find the word dunamai translated as able. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Do do you sense the reverberation of the dynamite? To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ago ages. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Think about the dynamite. Now to him who is able... To do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Or Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Consequently, he is able. He is powerful. He is dynamite. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. May I say this, that when the scripture speaks of God's ability or power, there is something that that we desperately need to come to terms with. There is nothing. 
in the universe that can hinder the power of Almighty God. Yeah, here's what I hear all the I hear people saying that God limits himself, that God, God is a gentleman, that he gives the creature the free will. Wait a minute. Listen, come back to the reality. There is nothing. There is nothing that can hinder the power of Almighty God. Job says in chapter 42, there is nothing that can thwart the power of God. This is the all encompassing mighty power of God. The mighty power of the sovereign God of the universe. So go back with me to Jude 24. Exactly now, now that we have this, I I, I hope you can just sense it exploding in your mind's eye. Exactly what is God able to do? Jude highlights three aspects of his power in these remaining verses. Here's what he does. As we think about his power, we see this, that his power protects our salvation. God's power protects our salvation. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now that word keep, and we're going to really do some dissecting this morning because I think it's very important. The word keep means to, to guard. It means to keep watch over. If you can imagine a, a, a prison guard. Guarding a prisoner. That prisoner is not getting out. That's what this word means. But it also means to keep someone from being lost or perishing. Here's how the word is used in Acts chapter 28 verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who, guess what the soldier was doing? Alex, come on up. Come on up. You know what the soldier was doing? Someone help me. Guarding him. All right. Now. Right? I think Alex is probably stronger than me. Right? So we're not going to do an object lesson because I'll probably flip over there. But I'm holding him. I'm guarding him. He had no idea this was coming. Right? That's what's happening here in Acts. Guarding. And that's exactly what's happened in happening in verse 24. Thanks, Alex. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. This is what I'm hearing, and I've been hearing this my whole Christian life. Yeah, I understand that God, God guards us, but what about Our free will. We can walk away because God's a gentleman. And I can't find that verse. You know why I can't find that verse? It's not there. It's not there. So what happens is we take our our presuppositions and we force them onto the text. And we say, I understand that God says he's going to hold me like I was holding Alex. that, That we can never lose our salvation But what do man-centered people do? They say, but what about free will? And my question is, what about it? What about it? I prefer to focus on this this power, this almighty power of the living God. Please notice that God's power here in this passage is sufficient to keep his people. 
That's you and me. If you're a Christian, the Word of God says that God's power, this mighty power, is sufficient to keep you from stumbling. Do you see it? Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Here's what the word means. It means walking unsteadily. Walking unsteadily. It means falling into ruin. That the sovereign God of the universe, get ready, the encouragement's coming because some of you walked into church this morning and you know what kind of thoughts are going through your mind. Some of you did something over the course of the last week or the course of the last month and the the thought has popped into your mind, I wonder if I've lost my salvation. And at that point, the very first thing that should pop into your mind is Alex. Right? But use Alex as a, as a trigger. Because you don't want to focus on Alex. You don't want them focusing on you, do you, Alex? Good. <laughs> Me neither. But use Alex as a trigger point. Say, oh, I remember God guards his people. And then use that trigger point to remember that God will guard your salvation. He will keep you from stumbling to all eternity. He will keep you from falling into ruin. But you don't understand the filthy thoughts in my mind. But you don't understand how I treated my parents. But you don't understand what I did at that business. You don't understand the gesture I made. You don't understand. You fell in the blank. God will preserve his people to all eternity. God in all his power is to keep every follower of Christ from falling into the sin of apostasy, which these false teachers had fallen, as we have seen. And so what does God do? He does it. He does it. Now to him who is able, powerful, to keep you from stumbling. And once again, it's precisely at this point that many people walk away from the clear teaching of Scripture, from the authority of Scripture, by asking questions like, what about a specific sin? What about free will? What about, do you remember the cartoon character? Wah, 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 wah. That's what people do. When all along we should say, look at verse 24. Now him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and our response should be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much. Now, when we subject ourselves to the, scrup- to the truth of the Word of God, we affirm this reality. And I hope you will affirm this with me by now, that God's power protects our salvation. Hold your finger in Jude and go with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. And th- there is so much in this particular section of Scripture that we know as the high priestly prayer. But let me just give two very important verses. While you're turning, though, this is Jesus addressing the Father. This is before he goes to his destination of the cross. And he says in verse 11, To the Father, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. That is the people of God. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Remember that word keep, that's Alex's word. That's going to be your favorite word, Alex. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
Now, interestingly, in verse 12, he says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have, now here's another, it's a military word, I guarded them. It's a totally different Greek word. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Go back to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And begin reading with me in verse 27. And we will see the wonderful, particular love and grace, sovereign grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand i and the father are one i want you to remember this morning that the power of god protects our salvation and there are no clarifications there are no yeah buts there are no but don't you think The power of God protects our salvation, period. There's a second thing that God is able to do. We see it once again in verse 24. The power of God not only protects our salvation, the power of God presents us as blameless. The power of God presents us as blameless. And there are two key words in this verse that I hope jump out to you immediately. Again, verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That word present means to to put in in an upright position. It means to, to establish someone. John MacArthur says something important here. He says, a hallmark of genuine faith is that it endures to the end. Did you hear what MacArthur said? The hallmark of genuine faith is that it endures to the end. Have you ever heard of someone or know someone who did not endure to the end? That is a hallmark that someone did not ever have saving faith. That does not mean they lost their salvation. That means they never had it. They never had it. So the hallmark of genuine saving faith is that it endures to the end. It is God here in verse 24 that makes this presentation. God alone places his people in a particular position. It is God alone who establishes his people. This act of divine presentation, you must remember, is a result of his grace on our behalf. This is not a presentation on the basis of who we are. Or what our abilities are. The presentation is not based on what we have accomplished or what we could ever say or do. This presentation that we see in verse 24 is a result of sovereign grace. It's what John Newton referred to as amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Now exactly what does this presentation involve? This person who has been presented in an upright condition or position, what does it involve? Well, Jude 24 tells us it involves blamelessness. And the word here is important. It means to be free from spot or guilt or stain. 
In the class that I'm teaching, the video series that we're studying together, Peter Jones says something interesting as he refers to the sin of homosexuality. He says this, that Paul is not a homophobe, which might surprise some Christians. And I agree with him. He's not a homophobe. He does not merely want to make homosexuals feel guilty. He wants everyone to feel guilty. Heterosexuals, homosexuals, sexual sinners... All of us are born into a guilty state, and so we should all feel guilty, which leads us to the good news that every person who is in Christ is presented as blameless, free from spot or stain or guilt or defect. This person is above reproach. It is used here to describe the the sinless state that we will all achieve when we go to glory. See, one of the things that we're going to study when we get to the book of Romans, and you're going to hear it over and over and over again. And why will you hear it over and over and over again? You remember that in the 16th century, people would ask Luther, Luther, why do you continually preach the gospel? You you do it in every sermon. And his answer is classic, because they keep forgetting. They keep forgetting. Some of you forgot that I've been saying that all these years, right? So I'll continue to say it. But here's something you hear over and over and over again. We have been set free from the power of sin. We have been set free from the penalty of sin. And one day when we receive our glorified bodies, we will be set free from sin's very presence. And so Jude here says that we are called blameless. We are justified, and this is a reality that is shouted from the rooftops on the pages of the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, says, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, Doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, when God the Father chose you, if you're a Christian, when God the Father chose you, he did it for a very specific reason, so that you would be holy and blameless in the Christian life. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm a liberal Christian, I'm a progressive Christian, I do my own thing? The only way to respond to such a person is by saying, that's the most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life. You, if you are a Christian, and I'm seriously wondering at this point, if you are a Christian, please remember, God chose you so that you would be holy and blameless in his sight. Husbands, Paul says, love your wives As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, the fact that God presents his people as blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, by the way, as Jude says, is good, good news. Why? Because in order for you and I to stand in the presence of God, we must be blameless. We must be blameless. So says Revelation 21, 
7 and 8. I want to also add that the scripture clearly proclaims. And here's where more encouragement comes. If, if you are a follower of Christ, you have been justified. You remember Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you are a follower of Christ, you are, as the reformers were fond of saying, simul justus et peccator, English please, simultaneously righteous and sinful. You see, I don't get it. The Word of God says if you are in Christ, you are simultaneously righteous and sinful. If you are a follower of Christ, God not only views you as blameless now, He promises to present you as blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. And as I've already indicated, on that day, sin will be gone forever. You will never have another temptation. You will never have a sinful thought. You will never have a sinful inclination. And all God's people said, Is anyone sick of sin? I read a review of one of my favorite books by John Owen, Volume 6, on the mortification of sin. And the author simply said, John Owen hates sin. That's a great review. That is a great review. I hope that as you sit at Christ Fellowship today, you can say that there's something in this life I hate with a holy passion. I hate sin. And so when your pastor says, there will be a day when you will stand in the presence of God and you will never be able to sin anymore. By the way, the free will issue, here's what some people do. You'll have free will in heaven. I think not. You will not have an inclination to sin. You will not have a desire to sin. You will never have a propensity to sin. You will be blameless. In heaven, one writer says, we will experience not only the absence of sin, but also the presence of perfect holiness. All our faculties will be emancipated from evil and fully devoted to the righteous worship of God forever and ever. That is to say, in heaven, we will all know the fullness of joy. What Jude refers to, once again, as great joy. I had a wonderful coffee time with my friend Dan Newton a few days ago. And I gave Dan a, a, a picture that, because Dan's the, the, he's, he's an amazing photographer. And so I said, Dan, here's a picture I tried to blow up and it, it's, it's not blowing up right. And so... He's going to help me with that picture, right? But there's a story behind that picture. This is the day I went, and I, I've shared little bits and pieces of that story before. This is the day I went to Green Lake, and I walked around Green Lake and had a chance to sit down and have an amazing cup of coffee and, and study and, and prepare and write. And this was a very special day because it, it was so beautiful. This is a day when I saw when I saw... Moms walking with their children and, and people walking with their dogs and everyone was getting along and there was no crime and there was beauty and there was harmony and it smelled good. And I had my headphones in, listening to some great music. It, life was good. And I thought to myself, and some people say, oh, come on, you're like blowing this out of proportion. No, I'm not. I thought it's like it, it's like this smidgen of what it's like in heaven. I was experiencing it, right? And you say, but in heaven, wait a minute. We did a series on heaven, right? Where will heaven be? On the new earth. We will enjoy God's good creation. We will eat 
amazing food. We will drink amazing coffee. We will be filled with joy on the new earth. And on that day, I I got a smidgen of that. So when I took the picture, I snapped the picture and I thought, I never want to forget this moment. The only thing that would have made that moment more perfect if Jereen and Abby and Nathan were with me. Then it would have been absolutely perfect. So I I hope you're here and you strive after joy. That you long to be a person filled with joy. There are too many in the church who who poo-poo joy. And they feel like if they're happy, they must be doing something wrong. No. You remember what John Piper says? God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. So if you experience one of those green lake days when you're like, it's almost like I'm in heaven. It's like a touch of heaven. Don't feel guilty, but rejoice in that. Knowing that one day you will stand on the new earth completely blameless, totally blameless, and never struggle with sin again. Psalm 16 says it best. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's power protects our salvation. God's power presents us as blameless. And finally, God's power prompts praise it's very interesting because while jason and i talk a lot about worship and and whatnot the only thing jason knew is that i was preaching verses 24 and 25 and i get the order of service and what has jason chosen to do we're going to end with three songs something's happening with jason and me right this is amazing It's the Holy Spirit. Because this reality that we're looking at is not the kind of thing we can just close with a song and say, God bless you, have a nice week, you are sent. No, no, no. God protects our salvation. God presents us as blameless. His power additionally prompts praise. I'll put it this way. Praise belongs to God and God alone. Praise belongs to God and God alone. The law of God reveals that God alone is to be worshipped. May I remind you, Exodus chapter 20, and this is one of hundreds of verses. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generations, those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God is the only one that is worthy of our worship. The law of God tells us that. But the prophets also reveal that God is alone to be worshipped. In one of dozens of passages, Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. That should cause us to stop and shake in our boots. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Josiah. You're like, man, I'm glad I wasn't asleep, right? Josiah Christensen, I love your name. When your mommy and daddy named you Josiah, I've never talked to your dad about why he did it. But wow, I bet you there is a reason for it. Josiah in the Old Testament was a good king. 
Josiah was a godly king. And why was he so good and why was he so godly? By the way, he was a sinner just like all of us. But God used him in an amazing way to get rid of the idols in the land. He got rid of idolatry. See, Josiah understood the Old Testament law. Josiah understood what the prophets proclaimed in the Old Testament. We will not tolerate idolatry in the land, he said. But it wasn't too long, and we'll see this when we begin to study the book of Habakkuk, that the ways of Josiah ended and new kings rose to the throne, and they were not like Josiah. They were not good like Josiah. They were not godly like Josiah. And what does Israel do? They worship idols. They worship created things. Jude 25 reveals that God alone is to be worshipped. He is to be ascribed, as verse 25 says, glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, as we close, I want to have you look with me at the big picture. And we're not going to read this whole section of Scripture, but I want to have you just with, with your eyes to, to gaze for a moment from verse 20 all the way to verse 25, no matter how your, your Bible is arranged, and to think about what we've learned. Think about, think about the, the four admonitions that Jude gave the first century believers. Think about the admonitions that he gave you and I. Here they are. We are called to to build ourselves up in the faith. We are called to a prayerful posture. We are called to have an eager spirit. We are called to have empathetic hearts. God calls us in other places of Scripture to be imitators of God. He calls us to walk in love. He calls us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did I remind you when we began that we have something to do? We are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are called to mortify the flesh by the Spirit. We are called to expend energy in the Christian life. My hero, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I'm convinced that he died when he did in his mid-50s because he just, he just burned out. He just preached, 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 preached. George Whitfield as well. Preached thousands of sermons and dies as a young man. These are men who are heroes who expended an enormous amount of energy. God calls us to fight the fight of faith. He calls us to finish the race. He calls us to keep the faith. He calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And so let us cast aside the the unbiblical notion that we sit passively by in the Christian life. We are called to to persevere the church is called to persevere so here's a question i pose and i think it's a, an amazing question to ponder are we called to persevere or does god preserve us are we called to persevere or does god preserve us and the answer is yes, yes. you've got it by jove you've got it <laughs> we are called to rigorous perseverance we stand strong we are bold but god preserves his people unto all eternity in fact it is god ultimately who preserves our salvation we saw in philippians 2:12 earlier that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling that's philippians 2:12 
But verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work to his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It is because of him that we are transformed into the image of Christ. God promises, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, to complete what he starts. When I was a child, I, I used to think that I could make those models. Remember, if you're 35 to 65, remember the models you get at Kmart? Right? I always remember they're expensive. And I'd, I'd get these models and I'd, I'd open it up and go, <sighs> my son could put it together without the instructions, right? Me, with instructions, I can't even put the fuselage together of a plane, right? It's like, this, this is crazy. So I'd do a couple of things on the model and what would happen? You put it on the shelf and you never touch it again. That is not what happens in the Christian life. That when you trust Christ, When you trust Christ, a building project begins. And God always finishes what he starts. When Jude wrote these dear believers in the first century, their faith was mightily under attack. Their church was being assaulted by apostates. But in the midst of this vicious attack, he reminds them, you're safe. He reminds them, you're secure. And because of the power of God, they will persevere. And Christ fellowship, you will persevere. Here's the truth point. The power of God protects us, presents us as blameless, and prompts praise. And so I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know if your marriage is on the rocks. I don't know if you have friends that ridicule your faith and and call you names. I don't know if temptation seeks to undermine your Christian testimony. Or debilitating depression is, is de- depression is feels like it's sucking the life out of you. Or false teachers are threatening you at every juncture. I'll be honest, every time I turn on Christian television, it seems like more often than not, I see a false teacher. That's very, very sad. Listen, God is calling you and I to persevere. But more than that, he promises that underneath it all, the underbelly of all that we're talking about, he is absolutely committed to preserving your Christian faith for all eternity, period, soli deo gloria. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever and amen. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for reminding us of your sovereign power. God, forgive us for the times when we were either tempted or actually did try to marginalize your sovereign power. Forgive us for the days when we subtly make you appear to be weaker. Forgive us, God, for for not believing that you are the God who says you can protect and indeed will protect our salvation to all eternity. And so would you encourage this, your people? I pray once again, if there's someone here that's not a Christian, you draw someone to the Son of God, 
that they would find salvation for the first time and that today they would not only find salvation, but today they would begin to persevere and learn that underneath it all is a God who preserves their faith unto all eternity. What a hope we have. What a delight it is to be a a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we sing, may we remember that you are a God who is holy, holy, holy. Amen.